Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Raj Suri, founder and CEO of Presto. Presto entered into a $634 million combination agreement with the Ventu CCM Acquisition Corp. in November of last year. If you've ordered a fast food meal using a smart touch screen or talking to a voice AI recently, there's a good chance Presto made that order happen. The company's developed both hardware and software that serve to automate quick service ordering and account some of America's biggest fast food chains among its clients. Raj talks about how Presto plans to expand within its clients' chains and what the future of automated restaurants will look like. He also speaks about how Presto and Ventu have ridden out the difficult market conditions and why Presto could serve as a hedge stock against inflation once the deal closes. Take a listen. So Raj, I just wanted to start at the beginning a little bit. You know, it was 2008, you were a co-founder at Lyft. When you turned to the restaurant automation space with Presto, what first kind of caught your eye in that new sector for you? Yeah, I think there was a couple of things that caught my eye. One was, you know, the the space was so large, right? Uh, it's it's large and I would say fertile for innovation. Restaurants are a big part of everyone's life. Uh, you know, going going out to eat and breaking bread with family and friends and people you've never met before. Even it's such a core part of human culture and the way we live. And and it hasn't really moved forward, uh, especially at that time, 2008. It hadn't moved forward really at all, and just seemed very antiquated, especially compared to other parts of our lives, you know, like our work lives, we're getting better much faster. Our private lives were advancing much faster as well with the iPhone and the new kind of consumer innovations. But restaurants were this core part of our lives that really had not transformed. And uh, for me, the combination of having a large space and one that was very far behind was an exciting opportunity as an entrepreneur to, to make transformational change. Yeah, and you know, it's been a while since then, I mean, especially technologically, but I imagine right now is just a fascinating time for automation in this space, just given the twin factors of kind of we're having the post-pandemic rebound and also labor shortages in that sector. So, you know, how much urgency are you really feeling from your clients at this moment? And how is timing really kind of a factor right now? The pandemic was a weird situation where like, you know, labor got much worse, but it was actually just accelerating a trend that was already happening for many years before that, that was not as much in in the public eye. You know, uh, labor was getting worse and worse throughout the 2010s, I would say. But when I started the company, it was taboo to even talk about labor in a meeting with a restaurant executive. No one would want to talk about it. And people would be like, yeah, labor is important, but I really care about these other things. You know, sales was a big thing, and etc. As the decade progressed, uh, labor increasingly went from like a third order, fourth order topic to like number one. Like this is like the main reason I'm I want technology in my stores. And for me, when I started the company, the main reason I started the company was to deliver a better consumer experience and a better end user experience because I'm a, I was an end user. So I, I empathize with the end user the most. But the longer I, you know, I ran the company, the more I realized that the executives really care about labor, especially given the, we were at full employment for at least five years there. You know, I think in the second term of Obama, you know, we've kind of hit full employment and that continued all the way to the pandemic. Since the pandemic, a lot of people predicted that when the pandemic would end, the labor shortage would end. But I knew that wasn't the case because I knew this was a pre-pandemic crisis that would only get worse because of all the people in the pandemic who had either left the workforce, plus you had two or three million immigrants not coming to the country in that time. If you combine those things, plus the birth rates are getting slower and slower, you know, you have a lot of macro factors that result in, in the long-term labor shortage. So the switch that slipped in restaurant leaders' head is that they realize that labor is not a short-term flash in the past issue. This is a long-term issue. 
And the only way to battle it long-term is automation. There's no other way, and especially nothing that's in their control. They can't control macro factors, but they can control what kind of technology they put in their stores. So we're seeing what I would describe as an arms race in the industry to who can automate the fastest and who can deliver the best guest experience with the highest upsell rates for the lowest cost um, and the most labor efficiency. Right. And you divide your products into the senses customers use to interact with them in terms of touch, vision, and voice. And I think most people are familiar with touch screens and hospitality and, and restaurants, but you view voice as being the biggest growth opportunity at the moment. Why is that? Look, I, I think voice is a big opportunity because, it's like, you know, we already had some, you know, large rollouts, you know, in that space. And so we're seeing acceleration and growth in the voice AI space. You know, we see computer vision as also being a very important growth area. There's a lot of growth, you know, I, we've signed more deals this year for computer vision than for voice, actually. But, we, you know, with voice AI, we have more announced rollouts. So I think both those technologies are growing quickly because restaurants realize they're more reliant on the drive through than ever before. It's not a it's channel that's going away. It's 70% of their business. That's a big part of the business. That even an incremental change would be worthwhile pursuing for them. But we're talking about a transformational change to their number one sales channel. So this is why it becomes their, their top priority to focus on. Got it. And then in terms of your revenue, you split that into money you're making from the customer being on the platform versus transaction revenue. And you're expecting that platform revenue to grow much faster through 2023. What is the reason behind that? Yeah, I think the, the reason is that most of our revenue going forward is going to come from the platform line versus like transactions. Um, and uh, this is just a, a function of how our business is built. Uh, we have we typically charge SaaS fees for our, our product. As we onboard, you know, several of the brands that we've signed this year, you know, roll them out to all of their stores, we're going to see a huge increase in the platform revenue going into next year. Yeah, that's really what I wanted to get into next in terms of just the, the clients that you've lined up recently. You have some of the, the U.S.'s largest fast food chains among your clients. And, and so in terms of what you've been able to strike with them so far, how, I guess, how broad are those contracts? And, and what is your strategy in terms of growing within those chains? Yeah, I mean, uh, when we work with a chain, we can either work with the franchisees or the corporate or both. Typically, we would sign an MSA with a, a large corporate customer that would give us the rights to work with the franchisees. And the, the corporate group would either make it mandatory or highly encourage franchisees to adopt the solution. And franchisees are often the ones clamoring for it because they're the ones hurt most by labor. I mean, the way franchisee economics work is that they're operating the stores and they have to give a small percentage, anywhere from 4 to 8%. Of the, of the top line to the corporate group. And then they're responsible for making as much margin as they can. And every dollar that they spend comes out of their pocket. So labor is a direct threat to the franchisee business model, even more so than corporate. So franchisees are the ones who are act actively pulling for these solutions. And so we sign multi-year agree agreements with both corporate and franchise groups to deploy our solutions to their drive-throughs or dining rooms. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would have guessed that it was actually that you'd see a little bit more resistance in some cases from the franchisees just because they, they tend to not always love what's coming down the pike from, from up above from corporate. But, but it's interesting that they seem to be seeing some of the, the bigger pain points as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the ROI for our solutions is really tangible and very visible, and that drives a lot of adoption uh, for the solutions. And I was interested in just sort of, you know, getting kind of to the, I guess, the consumer side of, of the kind of the experience in terms of interacting with your platform and, and, and some of the, the efficiencies that you've been able to find there. I mean, I'm sure everybody on the planet has gotten the wrong order at some point in time, but, you know, looking at your materials, I was struck by how much your automated services have been able to find and eliminate 
errors and waste, you know, kind of just through the, the general operations process. Can you get into some of those efficiencies? And there are some in there that I think most people wouldn't think of, but you know, what are some of the ones that stand out that you've been able to achieve by getting some more auto automation into these QSR restaurants? Yeah, that's the great thing about automation is that the benefits are not just the labor savings. They're also higher sales because the system never forgets to upsell. It's also more accurate orders, which means less waste, less refunds and less wasted labor time in remaking food. There's also more data capture from you know automation and technology in these restaurants. So there's a lot of benefits you know that go way above the, just labor savings, and uh, that's why you know it it really is a 10x better solution than. The current model of like relying on low wage labor who has 10 other things to do, right? Or, you know, and you're, you're talking about these staff members who are very busy and they're dealing with a lot of things and they have other job opportunities, right? So, you know, they can take on. So, restaurants want to actually make that job more pleasant so you can get higher quality people who want to take those jobs. They can do a better job at what the work they have, you know, on their plate. And you don't need as many of those people. You know, you can have better people, you can have better people making more money, doing more work if you have tools to help make them more productive. Definitely. And then just going off of that, we see automated customer service in more sectors than just hospitality and restaurants. So what other sectors do you think hold some promise and which do you see as being trickier in terms of the practicalities of that? Yeah, good question. Um, look, I, I think a lot of, physical industries are going to automate. I think almost all of them will. And the ones that are going to automate the fastest are the ones with the most expensive labor or the labor is the highest percentage of their cost, right? So I think healthcare is going to automate quite a bit. Healthcare is just 70% of their costs are labor. They're going to be adopting a lot more tools on technology across the board. You're going to see hospitals become like mini Silicon Valleys, right? From some perspective, right? They're going to have a ton of different of these tools like voice AI, computer vision. There's all going to be in a healthcare hospital. Uh, hotels have already started going in that direction. Uh, cruise ships have been going in that direction. Casinos are already very tech, you know, forward uh, from many perspectives. Stadiums are going in this direction. You know, retail is going in this direction. You're seeing the cashierless checkout store become more and more prevalent. There's a number of interesting startups in that space as well. So basically, everything that requires, you know, everything in the real world uh, is going to have a high degree of automation associated with it. I mean, trucking. You're seeing, of course, this with with self-driving cars and and things like that. You know, there's a drive to automate across the board. Who gets there first is going to really depend on, uh, you know, the combination of how difficult the automation is. You know, like robotics is often seen as like, you know, the, the prototypical automation solution, but it, it can be very difficult to implement. But you're going to see more robots out there for sure. I mean, like there's, you know, some of our customers like Chili's are actually have like waiter robots now. I, I think they're right. I think they more and more people are going to start adopting these solutions. And you mentioned in your materials that you've expanded internationally through Red Lobster locations so far. What other international opportunities do you see out there? Yeah, so I mean, the trend of, of labor shortages are prevalent throughout the developed world, especially in Europe, but, you know, um, but also Canada, Australia, those types of places. Japan obviously has had major problems for this for many, many years, and they've automated pretty rapidly. I mean, Sushi can vary about idea comes from them for a reason. That is the overall you know, macro trend. So we see all these, these types of developed countries would have labor shortages as prime you know, territories for Presto. However, I will say that the U.S. market is so massive, it's hard to even like, think about something else because they're talking about several billion dollars in annual recurring revenue just here in the U.S. So it's like um, I can't see us prioritizing international too much over the next few years just because there's so much low-hanging fruit here. 
And in terms of integrating your products into new locations, what kind of investment does that typically entail for the restaurant? And have you found that your products are a better fit for new builds or existing locations that are being renovated? Yeah, we, we focus our products on existing um, footprints because, you know, renovation, you know, who knows how long that will take. There's a there's a real time lag, right? I think that uh, overall, our systems are made to be very easy to install onto an existing you know, drive-through or dining room without much construction or kind of expensive rework or wiring or anything like that. Like it's, there was a concept, you know, for the tablet on the table back in the day, there was a concept of re basically rewiring every table to put computers on the table, right? And like, you know, install touchscreens in the table. And, uh, you know, that was a big thing back 10 years ago. And there were several startups in that space. And they all kind of went nowhere. You know, it's just, it's just not practical. Yeah, totally. And so moving over to the SPAC side of things, just for a bit, sort of in general, how did your team kind of come around to the decision that now was a good time to go public? And how did that process lead you to a SPAC deal? Yeah. So look, we work with large public companies and they like to work with counterparties who are mature and, you know, and companies that have seen a thing or two that have stable financials, well-capitalized companies. So for us, going public was always a long-term strategy. It was, it was even before this, the, the SPAC sort of explosion in 2021. So we were always looking for a way to go public as soon as we could. You know, we always thought we were a better fit for the 90s, where the 90s, you know, it was much easier to go public when you're an earlier stage company. But, you know, when the opportunity came, I mean, we had multiple, you know, SPAC bidders. We were excited to, to go down the path. And I think we picked a good SPAC sponsor who, you know, really understood our space, but also understood how to navigate all the pitfalls, you know, associated with going public. So, yeah, I think, it, you know, it's been a journey for sure. Um, but, uh, overall, we're, we're excited that it's nearing its end and get a chance to focus on the next phase. And you mentioned the, the journey aspect of it, because it has been a challenging market across the SPAC space. And, um, and you and, and Ventu CCM, uh, your SPAC partner, did end up restriking a portion of the deal sort of in the interim. And so how do you feel about how the transaction came out of that process? And was it sort of a, sur a surprise step? Or were you just sort of feeling the shifting winds of the market as well? And just generally, how did that all come about? Yeah, look, I, I mean... We knew the markets were overheated in 2021. It wasn't. It was not a secret to anyone. Um, and you know, we knew that. I think we could ride the the tailwind of this back. I would say oversupply back in 2021 and some great uh, offers that we could take advantage of. And uh, you know, I think we found a good partner and you know we negotiated fair terms you know from them. Uh, and I think everyone you know is going to be a happy winner when it comes to this deal. From our perspective, look, I, I think it was only a matter of when when the markets would you know, kind of correct. So it, it wasn't a big secret. I would say that. Um, we saw this coming. And so when it happened, I think we dealt with it very well. You know, we, we made the necessary corrections to the deal and to account for the new environment. We also changed our projections. And I think we added more money to the pipe so we can account for you know a larger number of redemptions. And ultimately, I, I, I think we handled, we navigated the waters pretty well. But, you know, what underpins it is that I think our business is doing well. And like, you know, in, in any capital market situation, in fact, in some ways, our business is doing better than ever. I mean, we're, we're doing better than when the, when the uh, even we signed the initial SPAC deal. And that has really helped, I think, matters as well. I mean, the truth is that for a lot of investors, we're seen as a hedge against inflation because we help combat wage inflation. And so that's why we tend to go faster relative to other companies in these types of markets. So I think that's helped us navigate this whole, you know, a choppy uh, capital market uh, environment, which we all saw coming. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I guess, I mean, just sticking with deal making, but in, I guess, a more forward looking stance is that you know, M&A becomes a lot easier once you're a public listed company and you presentation points out that that's something that's of interest for Presto. What are the sorts of things that uh, you'd be looking to add through M&A? And, you know, how do you think you, you plan to approach that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, definitely makes us more attractive to potential targets. 
you know, we, we plan to announce some deals this year. Um, we're talking to several. There's a, there's a lot of great companies out there that could accelerate our growth. And so uh, that's a big benefit of going public. I think it's good for talent as well to see that we're a stable public company. So yeah, we're excited for the M&A piece and you know, it's, it's going to bolster our growth for the next couple of years. And being publicly listed certainly comes with a lot more paperwork, but what are some of the things that you're looking forward to being easier as a public company? Yeah, I think some of these M&A conversations like pricing, you know, people's stock when, when you're hiring talent, I think is a bit easier, although, you know, it could be harder depending on how the stock performs. You know, I, I think also conversations already, it's easier to have conversations around Presto's financials because they're like, hey, you can just check the website. You know, you can just check the SEC website to know what our financials look like. So, you know, I think that part is actually easier. I, th- I think being public suits Presto just from a operating model perspective, like we work on advanced technology. There's not a lot of competition in our market necessarily because most other companies are much smaller or, or much bigger. And, and there's not really anyone really in our sweet spot who does the kind of variety of things we do. I think it makes sense for us to be a public company in, in that respect. And, you know, I think the access to capital also gets a little bit easier depending on how you navigate it. Definitely. And what is the most exciting technological addition that you're looking forward to with your platform? Are you planning to add any new senses? Uh, yeah, <laughs> like smell or something. Um, I think uh, <laughs> taste. I think that uh, we, we would love to. I think we're not there yet on the technology front. Uh, I think you, you need some chemical um, um, advancements for those. No, I think we're planning to bolster these touch, vision, and voice, uh, you know, as much as possible. There's, there's a lot of room to grow within these areas. It's really exciting to see the interplay between the different senses too, you know, the touch and vision and voice. Um, you could actually develop some really compelling products. Like our next generation touch product, for example, has voice AI built into it. You know, so you're at a table, you're at a dining room and you, if you want another beer, you don't have to even wait for the waiter. You don't have to hunt and pick on the touch screen. You just say, I like, you know, like another bud, right? And, you know, hey, Presto, I'd like another bud. And someone can bring over a beer to you, right? Like that type of experience when you combine like the touch and the, and the voice, or, you, or if you combine like the touch and the vision, where like the vision can alert the waiter or the kitchen that has been 10 minutes since you ordered and your food didn't come, the, you know, ensure that someone takes care of that. Or if you raise your hand and you want, you know, attention and somebody immediately notices because the vision systems are around. Like, like these are very powerful combinations that no one else really has. And so we're, we're excited to be able to be the first and be the best at um, implementing you know, this suite of solutions. Yeah, great. Well, exciting times to come. I know that your your vote is coming up. So just before I let you go, I mean, you let our listeners know just sort of, you know, what to look for in terms of uh, the, the near term timeline for you guys and when they're going to see that exciting uh, uh, symbol switch and, uh, and what, what it's looking like for you for the rest of the year. Look, I, I think we're looking at a September timeframe. You know, the deal is at this point basically done. Looking at, the, yeah, it's the shareholder vote, um, just paperwork at this point. Yeah, and I think we're, we're going to be excited to, to celebrate this milestone and then work hard for, you know, building a great business for the next few years. I think, you know, there's a lot of great things that are in motion right now that uh, we plan to announce as well. So there's going to be a lot of announcements to come. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really exciting time for this industry. The tailwinds have never been stronger. You know, we're excited to be partnering with folks in the public markets to take this company to where it needs to be. Great. Well, we're excited to see it too. Uh, thanks so much for being on, Raj. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me.